And as he did so, Jesus was teaching us a very important lesson. And that is that as he went through the agony of the Garden of Gethsemane and then went to the cross on Friday, he was teaching us the lesson that there is a joy to be found in suffering. It is the joy of coming to the place of suffering with him and for him and realizing in those moments that you've been fully equipped by him for the experience of suffering. But it is also the realization that suffering is not an end in of itself. That God has the power and the ability to take suffering and to use it to accomplish a far, far higher purpose. And Jesus was living out that purpose on the cross on Friday. And that's where he found the joy in that suffering. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 10. As you turn there, the author of Hebrews is stressing as he writes this book the continuity between the Old Testament revelation of who Jesus is and the newfound faith in Jesus that these believers to whom he is writing are experiencing. But there is a difficulty as we have seen that these believers who are receiving the book of Hebrews for the first time are struggling with. We believe that they were Jewish Christians. Now Christianity was brand new. It was considered by the Roman Empire at that time to be an illegal religion. Christianity was outlawed. However, Judaism was an accepted faith. You could practice Judaism and be okay with the Roman Empire. These Jewish Christians were caught in a bind. For on the one hand, they had Judaism that was rejecting them for having decided to become followers of Jesus. And they were embracing a new faith that was not accepted or recognized by the Roman Empire. So they were sort of getting caught in a squeeze between the two. Many of them were being tempted to give up their faith and to walk away from their faith. They couldn't live with this tension anymore. And it seemed that God was either not concerned about what they were going through or that he was powerless to do anything about what they were going through. And in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9, in the midst of this struggle, the writer there says these words, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might test, excuse me, taste death for everyone. Notice we begin at verse 9. But we see him. That was the answer that he offered. You're going through a difficult time. You're tempted to give everything up. It looks like everything is out of control. In fact, he says in that preceding verse, Now in putting in everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So this writer is saying, if you look around you and you see what you're going through, you recognize that you know, not everything looks like it's in subjection to Jesus. How many times do we go through times in life and we say, I know he's Lord, but it doesn't look like he's Lord. It doesn't feel like he's Lord. I don't see much evidence of him being Lord. And he says, but we see Jesus. When you get to that place that it looks like that life is under control of anything and everything but Jesus, 
Look at Jesus. Look to Jesus. Keep your focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And now he lays it out what it means for him to be in control. Beginning with verse 10. For it is fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus was made complete, perfect through the experience of suffering. And so are we going to be made complete through the experience of suffering. Well, my sermon outline is contained in your bulletin. I invite you, if you will, to follow along with me. God uses suffering to accomplish His will. Notice, let's just break this verse down. It was fitting. It's not arbitrary, the writer is saying here. It fits perfectly with the will of God, the character of God, how God operates. Who is this God for whom and by whom all things exist? Now, what the writer here is doing is he's drawing, if you will, a contrast between what God did in creation and what Jesus did in his life and particularly in his crucifixion. He speaks of God and he says that God created all things. It was all created for him. He was the goal of creation. He created it for him. And by him, everything exists. Nothing can exist without him. God is the goal and the author of creation. Jesus is the author and the goal of salvation. The work of creation was by God only. Jesus is the only one who could carry out the work of salvation. Our deliverance from sin and from shame and for judgment is totally by what he did and only by what he did. God poured himself into creation. Jesus poured himself into our salvation. When God spoke, we saw this a few weeks ago in the book of Genesis... When God spoke, it only took a word, and He spoke the worlds into existence. But salvation was an entirely different matter. Jesus just didn't speak salvation into existence. Salvation, our salvation, our deliverance from sin and from shame and from the judgment of God required the incarnation. That is, he had to take on a human body and walk this earth and live like you and I. It required humiliation. The humiliation he went through on the cross. It required his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. And when God went to create this world, the Bible says in Genesis 1, he created out of nothing. When Jesus went to save us, he didn't have anything in us to work with. So he had to create our salvation, our deliverance out of nothing from us and 100% out of all that he was. Do you realize that it cost God far more time, energy, blood, sweat, and tears to save us than it did to create us? It cost him far more to create us as a new creature in Christ than it did to create this body and to create this world. 
And God poured more of himself into our salvation and deliverance of us than he did in even creating the world that is around us. The next time you look at the mountains, the next time you see the seashore, the next time you look up at a cloudless night and see the sky and you say, man, God, what you created, how awesome it is. Then look inside yourself and say, Lord, what you are creating in me and what you have created in me in the deliverance and the salvation that Jesus provided is greater than all of that and cost you more than all of that. Notice what he says next. In bringing many sons to glory. You went through all of that to bring us to glory. And what's the idea? What is he saying there? It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom, all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. Well, the first idea there is that we share in his triumph over sin, death, grave. When Jesus saves us, we become a participant, a sharer in all that he triumphed. Next week on Easter Sunday, when we celebrate his resurrection, we share in the power of his resurrection. We share in what he has done and all that he has been victorious over. That is why the Bible says that when the believer dies, that we don't grieve as others who have no hope. Why? Because in death, we share in the process and in the experience of death, we share in his triumph over the grave. We share in his triumph over our sin. That's why we don't have to stay in bondage to sin. We don't have to stay in bondage to shame because while we share in his triumph over that, that's what it means for us to be brought to glory. He has been crowned with the glory of triumphing, and we share in that. Now, it says that he's bringing many sons to glory, and that's the picture of a tremendous family processional making its way through this life and then together making our way to heaven. Now, what's it going to look like? When he completes it. Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, which is the Lord Jesus, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands. Now notice the last phrase there, with palm branches in their hands. On that first Palm Sunday, the people welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem, waving the palm branches back and forth, saying, you were triumphant and you come in peace. Here in Revelation chapter 7, the writer of Revelation, John, pictures all of believers from all of the ages standing in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and waving palm branches yet again. This time we will wave them proclaiming that he is triumphant and he is victorious and that is the destiny, that is the end to which he's taking us. When it says here that he's bringing many sons to glory, that is where we ultimately end up in glory, standing in heaven 
with all the believers through all of the ages of every tribe, tongue, and people. You standing there with people of every kind of skin color under, that's known on this earth. From every language and ethnic group there is. And we are celebrating together in His presence. And we are proclaiming His triumph. And we will do that for eternity. That's the destiny that He's taking us to. That's the idea of we are being many sons being brought to glory. So many times I talk with Christians and we get so down and we get so discouraged and we say the culture is going against us, etc., etc., etc. We're not facing anything that believers didn't face in the first century to begin with. In fact, what we're facing is nothing compared to what they faced in the first century. But folks, our destiny is not to walk around with our heads down and feel like we've been beat up and beat down and knocked out. That's our destiny, Revelation 7-9. That's what it's all moving towards. When we will join Him someday. And man, for believers, when we do have the sorrow of saying goodbye to another believer and, and they pass away, it, it's not saying goodbye forever. It's saying, hey, I'll see you someday. And that when I do see you, it's going to be around the throne. And when I see you around the throne, it's going to be when we're around the throne worshiping Him and praising Him. Get my palm branch and get ready for what He's got coming on that day. Now, Suffering will complete us. Notice what he says next. Verse 10. Hebrews chapter 2. And bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation. That is Jesus, of course, perfect through suffering. Now take the word founder there. Several ideas. First of all, the word founder there means in its root has two key ideas, the first being like a pioneer. It's like a mountain climber who goes ahead of others. And what does he do? He has to chip away at the rock as he goes up. He has to extend the rope behind him. He's blazing the trail. And so what it's saying here is that when Jesus is the founder, he's the pioneer, he's gone ahead of us. He's taken the hits already. He's extending the rope for us to grab a hold of and follow him. Now, Thomas Jefferson, after the Louisiana Purchase, wanted to find out and had to find out what all the land was that the United States had purchased. And so he commissioned two guys who made that famous track called Lewis and Clark... And they went into the western part of what we know today as the United States. And they mapped out everything in what was there. Came back, filed their report, and that opened up the westward expansion of the United States. And what did they do? They were pioneers who went into an unknown country, discovered what was there, and then opened it up for everybody else to follow them. The idea of this word here, when it says he is the founder or the pioneer, is that Jesus, when he went to the cross and died on the cross and rose again three days later, opened up a new country for us. He did not open up the riches of God. He did not open up the marvelous, awesome aspects of who God is, all that our salvation provides for us. Not only deliverance from sin, shame, and guilt, but deliverance into all that he offers us. Most in, encapsulated in a deep, growing relationship with him. The power of God, the glory of God, the love of God. He didn't open all of that up so we could just talk about it and think about it. He opened it up so that we could move into that country and that we could explore it 
and experience how awesome God is. So that he's the pioneer who's gone before us and opened it up for us. Secondly, that word spoke of a hero or champion in the Greek culture of that day. Hercules used that term of himself and had it used in Greek literature and placed on the coins. What's the writer of Hebrews saying? Jesus is our hero. Jesus is our champion. He won our freedom as he suffered and died on the cross. He's our hero and our champion over death when he walked out of that grave three days later. He is our hero and our champion in that everything that the devil could throw at him, human beings could throw at him, life could throw at him, he saw it, he faced it, he looked it down, and he walked away triumphant. He is our hero, he is our champion. You need a hero, look to Jesus. You need a champion, look to Jesus. We do not worship some weak, puny God. We worship one who faced down everything and faced it triumphantly and walked away with the dust riding off of his feet in victory. We've got a hero, we've got a champion, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what it says about him. Verse 10. He's the founder of their salvation, made perfect through suffering. Let's look at the word perfect. Two key ideas there when it says he was made perfect. It does not mean that in who he was, he had to become perfect because he was the perfect son of God to begin with. Two ideas. Number one, the first idea behind perfection there is that he was brought to completion. In other words, as Jesus hung and suffered on the cross, God used the experience of suffering to bring his work to completion. God was completing his work through his son on the cross. And suffering was a means at God's disposal that he used to bring that to completion. Jesus did his best work looking the worst. Jesus did his best work looking the worst. Imagine if you had been at the foot of the cross that day. And you had walked up and you'd stood there and you looked at him. Naked, covered in his own blood. Swollen from the beating that he had received. Struggling to breathe. He looked his worst. And he was at his best. He looked his worst. And he was at his best. And if someone had walked up to you that day that knew what God was doing. They would have said to you. Our salvation is being secured right now. Our deliverance is being made possible right now. Our heaven is being opened right now. Our joy is being bought 
right now. Our being redeemed and made His is taking place right now. Oh, I could stand here on this hill for hours and explain to you and tell you and open up to you what is happening right now. Because what looks like the worst is really the best. And you see, folks, so many times when we go through suffering in life, we think we look our worst, but God is doing His best work in us when we look our worst. We may feel like we look like a wreck, but if you're letting God be at work in you when you feel like you're a wreck, God's not wrecking you more. God is doing a work inside of us to perfect us and make us complete even as we're going through it. The second idea, when it says here that he was made perfect, is that he was fully equipped. Now, God fully equipped Jesus in two particular ways. First off, he equipped us, equipped him, I should say, as our great high priest. In the Jewish religion of that day, the great high priest on the Day of Atonement would go into the Holy of Holies in the temple. He went first through the first room, which was called the Holy Place. And then on one day of the year, the Holy of Holies or the Day of Atonement, the most holy day, he would go into that second room, the Holy of Holies, and he would stand in the presence of Almighty God, and he would offer up a sacrifice. He went in there equipped with a sacrifice to offer. Jesus is our great high priest. When he died on the cross, went into the presence of God and offered a sacrifice. Jesus that day functioned as our great high priest, but he also simultaneously functioned as the sacrifice. He was the high priest offering the sacrifice of himself. He was fully equipped by God to operate as our high priest and as our sacrifice. Now, through the ages, when the great high priest would walk into that holy place, he would pull back, step around this huge veil that hung from the top of the Holy of Holies down to the floor. So if you stood in the holy place, you could not look into the Holy of Holies, into the presence of God. So you'd have to step around the veil to get back into the Holy of Holies. After he offered his sacrifice, the high priest would turn around and step around the curtain back into the holy place. So you always had to step around the veil to get in. You had to step around that great big huge curtain to get back. But the Bible says that when Jesus stood in the presence of God following his death and saying it is finished and offered his sacrifice of himself to the Father, that that veil split by the hand of God from the top to the bottom. So that when that happened, you didn't have to step around. You could just walk right through the veil out. But even more important, when the veil was split from the top to the bottom, if you were on this side of the veil, you could walk right in. In fact, you could stand there and you could look right in. No one had ever been able to do that. Couldn't you imagine what it would have been like at a priest that day to be standing in the holy, holy place and you're standing and all of a sudden you start hearing this rip. 
And you look up and you see this curtain, this veil start ripping from the top to the bottom. And you're thinking, what in the world is going on here? And then you're thinking, oh my God, I'm going to be able to see the very presence of God. And that was the exact reason he split the veil. He was saying, come on in to my presence. My son just made it possible for you to come into my presence. And folks, someday when we breathe our last, we will journey to heaven into His presence. Fully equipped. But I can't stop there. Because He was fully equipped to be our intercessor. He didn't stop with offering the sacrifice. Once He offered the sacrifice, He said, Father, I'm going to pray for them. And he said, Father, I'm going to take their prayers, weak, feeble, screwed up, don't know what to say and quite how to say it, but I'm going to take their prayers and I'm going to bring their prayers into your presence. And by the time I get through with their weak, feeble prayers, they're going to be acceptable and they're going to be strong and they're going to be mighty. And they're going to get a hearing from you, Father. I say this to you repeatedly in messages because what I find is so many of us don't pray because we think we are such lousy prayers because we're putting all of our faith in how well we can verbalize and put a prayer together. But our ability to get a hearing with God and an answer from God is not on how well we can pray. It's that His Son has ripped open the veil. He has taken us before the Father. He intercedes on our behalf. Think about that. Jesus is praying for you today before the Father. If that doesn't give you confidence, I don't know what will. And He's taking our prayers as weak and screwed up as we think they are, and He's bringing them to the Father, and He's going to take them, and he's, the Father's going to hear, and the Father's going to respond. You see, getting an answer to prayer is not based upon how good a prayer I am. It is based upon Jesus Christ, who He is, and what He is doing before the Father. My confidence isn't in me. It is in him now the devil is going to do everything he can to make us lose confidence in our ability to pray so we stop praying because he knows that when we start praying what happens when the prayer gets before the father and he is fully equipped to intercede on our behalf some of you I'm talking to right now, you're so defeated because you've been praying for a child, you've been praying for a relative to get right with God, you want to give up, you've been praying over a situation that's just beating down you, beating down on you, and you want to give up in life, you're so beat down, the devil's doing everything he can to get you to stop praying because he knows what happens when you do start praying. He knows what kicks in in heaven when you start praying. He knows you, but he is scared to death of your intercessor when you start praying. So just stay with it. Stay out to prayer. Finally, he understands us fully. He took on our body. He did all that it means there. He became perfect through suffering so that he would understand fully. He used to use an expression when I was a child, walk a mile in somebody's moccasins so you know where they're coming from. That's the reason he walked this earth for 33 and a half years. To walk that mile plus. He knows what it is to stand by a graveside and cry. He knows what it is to see the devastating effects of sin and illness in people. He knows what it is to suffer 
He knows what it is to smile and laugh. He knows completely our human experience. Listen to Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verses 17 and 18. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen for the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal God has the power to take the experience of suffering and use it to his glory We only have to say to him what Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Let's pray. Father, when those times come in life, however they come, when you call us to that place of struggle and suffering, May we find your joy, and may we do so knowing that we have a great high priest, one who is fully equipped, one who has come, who intercedes for us, the one Lord who is our pioneer, who has gone before us to open up a country that you've got for us, one Lord who is our hero, Jesus, our champion. Lord, we bless you, and we praise you, and we worship you this morning. And we worship you, and we praise you as the one who came, who died for us, who rose again from the dead, and who is taking us, Lord, in a family processional into your presence. It will culminate in heaven someday, Lord. For we will stand in your presence and worship you. Lord, today we want to get a head start on that. We want to practice for what we anticipate is coming. Jesus, we bless you as our champion. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're here today and you need to trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior and make that decision to know him and to follow him and to walk with him, then I invite you in just a moment as we sing to come. I would love to pray with you about making life's most important decision. If you're here and you sense that God's calling you and leading you into our church fellowship, then I invite you to come. Become a part of our fellowship here. If the Lord's laying any other decision upon your heart, please, we encourage you to make that decision for Him. And if you just need to come here at the front and kneel and pray and talk to the Lord, feel free to do so. Father, have your way with us now as we respond to you. In Jesus' name, amen.